Okay, welcome to another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. Once again, joined by our friend Alex McLean to talk about some recent occurrences in the return to play stuff, as well as some information has come out regarding CBA negotiations that have been taking place. Howdy, Alex. Hey, Steve. How are things? You know, I'm, I'm doing quite well. I've, uh, you know, we're, we're going to talk about like return to play scenarios and all that stuff. And it's, you know, it, it's so easy to be a pessimist about this stuff, right? They're not going to have tests. What about a second wave? Yada, yada, yada. Like bad shit's probably going to happen, right? Like, have you been following some of the other sports that have come back already? I can't say I've been following, uh, I think it was Bundesliga and NASCAR that have kind of been the last two that have tried to bring things back to what they can at this point. And I think if I wasn't in the before, I'm not going to be now. I know some people are chanting, oh yeah, sports, sports, let's just take what we can get right now. But I don't know. I'm not, uh, not against the break. And when, uh, my sports come back I'll jump right back on but in the meantime can't say I'm following those too closely I think you make a good point that yeah we will have to deal with all of the pessimistic opinions of yeah what do we do if there's a positive test what do we do about this and yeah there will have to be procedures taken and uh, things that we do have to manage to get things back to where they were, but we're working on it. And it's, it's good to see them trying anyway. And it's good to have something to talk about in the meantime where they are trying to get back. Yeah. Like I, you know, I, I think I, I've been really following the UFC. I watched that big card that they had uh, last week, oh, yeah. not, not this past weekend, but the one before. Uh, that was awesome, but I mean, like, they had a fighter test positive, whatever. I don't know. I don't want to dive, like, uh, we're in the time of COVID, but I don't want to go too far into COVID because I think that people are looking at this, like, if you're tuning into a podcast, you either want, like, information from people who actually know shit or yeah. you want an escape, and I certainly don't know shit, so uh, I'm going to try to offer up an escape, and I just... You know, I'm I'm a pessimist by nature, but I I was struck by this Amos Tversky quote that I that I've heard on various podcasts, and and uh, it's it's also referenced in Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project, uh, talking about uh, about the famous psychologist, and basically, like the, the quote is, when you're a pessimist and the bad thing happens, you live it twice, once when you worry about it. And then the second time when it happens. So I don't know. I'm going to try to be positive because it's better than thinking about how the NHL is going to fail. And then when it actually happens, being disappointed now and then then when, when it happens. So I think it's going to happen. I think it's coming back. Uh, did you read the proposal that uh, got suggested by both Elliot Friedman and Scott Burnside regarding, you know, the kind of four divisions playing in four hub cities with, with six teams in each division 
and they're going to play a round robin before breaking into the playoffs. What do you think of that? I like the uh, round robin idea. I think it takes away uh, some of the worries that teams have had in terms of not being fresh and diving right into postseason play. Uh, it, it does a good job of kind of limiting travel with your four hub cities and it seems to kind of be the best option out there at the moment because there's no perfect solution but this one seems to kind of tick off the bigger boxes anyway of what needs to happen and what we need to see in terms of getting NHL teams back yeah as soon as the hub cities proposal and, and the 24 teams thing was was floated out there a, a month or even longer ago now I immediately struck on the idea that have them play around Robin would be the way to mitigate the fact of losing those final regular season games as well mm-hmm. as you know you referenced it you don't want teams going into the playoffs rusty and you don't want to have teams play a play-in game and then have an advantage over the teams that got a buy like sure you got a buy you didn't risk getting knocked out entirely but now we saw this past season where teams coming off of the bye week around the all-star break were like 0-11 against teams that had already played coming off of their buy so there, mm-hmm. there's a huge advantage uh, in sure. not being rusty. So that's a great way to mitigate it. Now, I think a lot of people hate the idea of bringing 24 teams back, but it's a great way to get the big markets like Montreal, Chicago, and New York into the mix. Uh, where do you kind of fall? Like, should it be 20 teams? Should it be 24? How do you feel about that? I can definitely see both sides on it. I mean, the whole reason they're trying to bring this back and they're kind of forcing getting it back as early as possible is to make back the revenue to kind of have less of a disruption to next year's salary cap to the whole cash flow thing and just to kind of keep the fans involved. And all of those things point to the 24 team option being the more well-rounded to actually help out uh, all of the different parties but in terms of kind of the idea of what we were looking at before the NHL went on pause the 20 team option kind of encapsulates encapsulates who was actually in the run better and kind of seems a little bit more fair to the teams that were there because really Chicago Montreal they weren't really in the race and bringing them in at this point. I know the NHL's really tried to avoid having a team that wins the Stanley Cup or at least goes very far in the playoffs and also wins the draft lottery. So maybe you also want to avoid a team that wasn't going to make the playoffs end up winning, winning the Stanley Cup. So there's, uh, there's some good points to both sides. I think personally, I prefer the 20 team, but I think the 24 is a little more likely just to be able to make back the money. So you mentioned, you know, the, the Montreal, the Chicago, like, I don't know, it would be nice if we could just kind of 
nudge two teams out because I think the Rangers would be a deserving playoff team if they were to get in. And certainly there's, you know, additional teams in and around the wildcard mix in the West as well, but the numbers just don't balance out. So you're either going with 20 teams and eliminating some pretty good teams like the Rangers, or you're going 24 and you're including teams like Montreal and Chicago. And you reference the lottery. If you're the Canadians, do you want a slim shot at the cup or would you rather be in the draft lottery? I think every team wants this slim shot at the cup. I think it brings the fans in even for a half a playoff run or anything there. That's why you see so many teams at the end of the trade deadline run. You see them loading up, even if they're on the edge of the playoffs. Uh, We saw that with a few teams this year trying to make some moves to make a push into the playoffs or kind of keep it close. and. I think that's still the view of a lot of owners around the league at this point is if we can get it, even a shot at the playoffs and tell me there's a chance, then they'll take. Yeah. I I think I would want that shot at the cup as well. (laughs) However, my thought on it would be is how realistic is that Mm -hmm. shot uh, depending on how the format works out exactly because like if they come back and do the round robin thing and those games Mm -hmm. essentially become meaningless like if they end up doing five round robin games to to reseed a little bit Mm -hmm. and then they have like three play six and four play five and three game series to get into the playoffs Mm -hmm. then it's almost like what was the point of doing that round robin at all other than to shake off the rust but like I would like to see those games be meaningful while also not completely detracting from the 70 or so odd games that were already played and teams Mm -hmm. earned their way in so I don't know if there's like a point system where the team that's in first place in the division like Vegas they start off the round robin with five points and then Chicago or whomever crosses over Nashville or or whoever it would be like their last place in in, out of the six teams in the division and they get zero points. And then it like, they would have to win all their games basically to overcome Vegas in first place. I don't know if that's how they want to do it. I don't know if you want to like my idea for it was you have the top three locked in. So they, Mm -hmm. you know, they played 70 games by points percentage, whoever the top three are, they earned their top three spots. So Mm -hmm. they hang on to those. And then the bottom three are, those are all the wildcard type teams. So they have to fight it out for seeding. The the team coming out of the round robin that finishes last, they don't make it at all. And then four and five, they do the play-in thing to try to, and then they, they take on whomever comes out of it or, or something like that. So, so in your version, you end up having the top three teams play the round Robin, but it doesn't mean anything to them. I would reseed within the top three based okay. on the round Robin, but otherwise it doesn't mean anything. And maybe like the, the race 
is to not finish in that three seed and have to play a play-in game against the six seed. Maybe I'm not really sure on exactly how that should work out, but right. I think that those games should be meaningful. And I think mm -hmm. that they wouldn't be meaningful without some team being locked off right. by the round robin format. And it's also tough to do that while still keeping some <clears throat> integrity from the initial 70 games that were played. Exactly. So I don't know if, yeah, like I said, if you want to give teams a bunch of points and make it almost impossible for the six seed to jump up to the one seed, I don't really know what the answer there is. Mm -hmm. um, again, my idea would be to reseed the top three based on the round robin and then mm -hmm. the bottom three, they've got to duke it out. Yeah. And building on your kind of giving the top team five points, four, three, two, one, down to zero for the sixth team in each division. I wonder if you were to double that and make it uh, 10, 8, 6, 4, 2, 0, how much, uh, I mean, that would kind of give you a little bit of a buffer in terms of the amount of points need to be made up to move up in the standings, make it a little bit more realistic, still keep some of the integrity of the initial 70 games played but at that point you make it very tough for the top team to fall out you make it tough for the bottom team to jump up but it's not impossible at that point either yeah, i wonder if that's kind of a a little bit of a way to combine your uh, point standings while you're still almost locking in those top three could be something to finagle in that range anyway yeah, I'm going to have to sit down with a calculator and some charts and and <laughs> and figure yeah. out exactly what the uh what the appropriate uh, point breakdown would be because if you if it you know if Vegas starts with 10 and Minnesota's in last place and they got it, they start with 0, then they mm -hmm. literally can't make up enough points to become in first place and maybe that's mm -hmm. a good thing. Yeah. But if you have the second team ends up losing all five games and Minnesota wins four, then you can have them jump up and kind of tie for second or end up tying for fourth, depending on how all the other teams do. But you can, you kind of make a bit of a race anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. I really like that, uh, that idea, Ox. Um, one of my other concerns with the 24 team playoff. Like I'm, I'm for the most part, I'm for it, mm -hmm. but you know, once they introduce that idea is, is that going to be what they do from now on? Yeah. It, it's tough to make a, I'm blanking on the word, but it's tough to use this as something going forward when it's such a special time it's not really something that you can use and say oh yeah we did this last year so we have to do it this year going forward i think it's some it's a one-off you can't really claim that this is going to work for future years you're definitely not going to have a little five game round robin at the end of the regular season every year i think they once they can they probably go back but you could see a couple of teams say yeah we could go with the extra play in round of whatever seven plays 10 and eight plays nine 
at the end of the regular season in either a one-off game or a quick three-game round, best of three. It, it could be an extra little revenue-generating bit. And I know it's been tossed around on the fringes anyway, at least even before this whole pandemic situation came up. So it, it could be something that we see uh, pieces of moving forward, but I don't think to this extent we're going to see it again. I don't no, know. Are... We're not going to see a round robin happen mm-hmm. next season. Unlikely anyway. But yeah, my thing is like, it, we've seen it in, in major league baseball, right? Like once upon a time, it mm-hmm. was, you won the regular season, you went to the world series, like from each league. And then it became, you know, a, a, a divisional, the, the top teams in each division went and they played a series to go to the world series and then it expanded and then it expanded. Right. And mm-hmm. now they've got wild card play in games and this stuff doesn't really go back into the bag. You know, mm-hmm. um, we, we talked about it on previous podcasts, how people have, you know, in, in the political realm have taken advantage of, of crisis and let no crisis go to waste. And they introduce new things and to deal with some problem, but then those solutions for that problem, once the problem's solved, they don't, they don't take those away. They just, they keep them in place. Right. So Mm -hmm. with the NHL, they're going to see, they made up a bunch of revenue by having like, if, if they do, if they don't do the round robin thing, they just do whatever play in games to get down to the, the 16 to build their playoff this year. They're going to be like, well, we got a lot of revenue out of that. We like that. Okay. We're going to do that again. And so, and like, I don't hate the idea of wildcard teams having to play in. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you're bad enough, like there's, there's not a huge difference in the NHL between teams that make the wildcard and teams that just miss out on it. So I don't mm-hmm. mind that idea. And it's a little bit of fun and chaos, certainly entertaining. If you had a one game (laughs) play in like that'd be awesome entertainment, but just in terms of, I don't know, invalidating the regular season, like it's already too long as it is, but if you Mm -hmm. prove yourself to be the best over 70 or 82 or however many games it is, like, should you really have to play more games? I don't know what the right answer is there. I just think that if you hate that idea, you're really going to hate what ends up coming out of this, I think. I don't think we're going to have a 2014 playoff and then not have a 2014 playoff going forward. Yeah, or at least 20 teams. But, I mean, looking at this year, I would love to see the uh, Rangers have – been given a chance to make it to the normal 16 team playoff because with Igor Shostyorkin they were just running up the standings and I think they can do a lot more damage than a team like Columbus or the Islanders or somebody that was a little more likely to get in at this point so maybe it is necessary to have one or two of those play-in games where a hot team that kind of takes off in the second half maybe does is more deserving to kind of try and make a run for the Stanley cup because at that point they are the better team. Yeah. And certainly like playing games, 
Awesome. Do you remember in 2010 when the Flyers had to beat the Rangers and it mm-hmm. went to a shootout just to just to make the playoffs? Yep. And then they went to the Cup final. Yep. That was. It's always fun when it comes down to kind of one game at the end. Mm-hmm. And I guess my thing was would be that the NHL has now kind of built up their schedule so that hopefully that happens organically and it would kind of mm-hmm. suck to have it be like, okay, came down to the final game of the season to make the playoffs, but it's really the final game of the season to make the play-in game for the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So then it's like back to back and it's, it, it kind of diffuses the natural play-in game that that had come about through the regular season so yeah I don't I don't really know the exact answer there have you been paying attention to the I guess the the decreased likelihood of us having a June draft paying a little attention to it I guess I I'm just waiting at this point and once they announce a day I'll manage around that but at this point I'm not kind of searching for little snippets that point one way or the other but it does sound like there's a decision coming soon i think they need to give at least a month's notice to be able to host a draft and we're coming up on the point where if they want to keep their original end of june weekend draft date then they'll need to tell us next week or week and a half away so i think we're getting up close to knowing for sure and some sides seem to be pushing uh for a later draft and i think Batman's kind of cooled off a little bit in terms of trying to force a june draft but uh i don't know if i've really seen an inclination one way or the other that seems to kind of point for sure that once one way makes more sense or one way is definitely going to happen at this point i don't know if you've seen anything or been a little more on top of it yeah, I don't know. It's starting to sound like it's not going to happen in June. And just as I was like, I spent last week recording a whole bunch of podcasts kind of geared towards the 2020 draft. So it would, mm-hmm. it would be just like, uh, be just like 2020 to throw that curveball at me. But um <laughs> I mean, draft's going to happen eventually. So I, I don't really care mm-hmm. when it happens. Like we talked about it uh, a few weeks back, our concern was they don't really have their ducks in a row regarding what return to play is going to look like. And until they figure that out, they shouldn't be holding a draft. But it sounds like they're figuring out what the season's going to look like if it does come back. So they're in a better position to make a decision on what their draft should look like. Mm -hmm. And I think the other kind of point to be looked at in between the return to play and the draft is I know they had mentioned uh, looking at taking the draft and just doing one lottery winner where you can move up a max of four spots. But if you end up, yeah, fuck that. (laughs) I want want chaos draft lottery. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot more too. And if you end up having seven teams that don't make it, or if you end up going with, 20 team version if you end up having 11 teams that don't make it then they should all be part of the draft lottery that just makes sense there's no reason you need to taper it down this year there's no reason to exclude the teams that rightfully didn't make the playoffs whether it was a different format or not it's 
something that they just should manage to figure out. They don't need to completely revamp the draft draft lottery system two months before it happens. It's just common sense in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, shifting gears, Craig Custance and Thomas Drantz had a piece on The Athletic last mm-hmm. week introducing some proposals, I guess, from the from the league and ownership side regarding some stuff they would like in the new CBA, which those discussions ha- have started. Um, did you get a chance to go through some of those ideas? I did. I thought there were some interesting uh, kind of points, counterpoints, and just opinions in there that some things that we hadn't really discussed either in a few years or that us as fans, we kind of glance over and say, oh, that's not really a big deal. But there definitely could be some repercussions depending on how a lot of it plays out. All right. So let's go through them kind of point by point. And I've, I've lumped the first two uh, proposals together because I kind of see them as a little bit connected and certainly the the solutions to them could be the same. So number one, they want signing bonus limits. And number two, they'd love to flatten contract annual salaries. So like basically like looking at contracts like the Austin Matthews deal where so much of his contract is just pure signing bonus. You end up with teams being forced to shell out millions of dollars July one every year. And it kind of makes contracts buyout proof and it fucks up escrow and all that stuff. And then with that, you're also able to like front load deals with these massive signing bonuses and that becomes an even greater issue. So you can have a guy with the $11 million, um, but you've got to pay him like 16 million on July one, because not only is it a massive signing bonus, but also you're able to manipulate the numbers and have more money on the front end than on the back end. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely something that I think the players and the agents have really taken advantage of kind of really pushing the limits of where they are. And there's not really a big advantage for the league to let it keep going as it is. I mean, the players get some money up front, but that's really the only thing they have going for them. There's the lockout protection with some bonus money, but I think for the league as a whole, and especially for the majority of the, players associate association dealing with the escrow payments and all of that uh, extra math to it. It makes sense to kind of flatten the contract curves and bring the signing bonuses to a minimum and at least try and manage it to kind of make a little more financial sense all around. I I agree. They both uh, kind of get lumped into the same category with the signing bonuses and the, uh, kind of bio-proof contract that yeah it just makes sense if you're getting 25 million over five years then it should be five million a year it shouldn't be 17 million in the first year and eight million in the second year and then nothing the 
next three. So yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Yeah, I have less concern <clears throat> about the like the front loading, back diving, uh, not so flat contracts mm -hmm. because like ultimately it, it's kind of a tool, right? That teams can use mm -hmm. to manage their caps a little bit better. And like we saw it in the Sebastian Ajo offer sheet, which they used all the tools available to them, except they just didn't go far enough with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. he's, he's got minimum salary in all the years, but they front loaded it as high as they possibly could for an average annual value of 8.5 million. Um, so he gets, you know, he got an $11.3 million signing bonus in that first year of a five-year deal. And then it back dives, but he's still getting 5.25 million signing bonuses in the final couple of years of the deal. So they structured it in such a way that it would be really harmful to a small market team, but ultimately their error was just in not going far enough with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they needed to go to an even higher cap hit and even more money to make it like really punitive and maybe be able to have them not match it. But ultimately I don't think they necessarily like they wanted the player, but they also didn't want to shell out the draft capital that would have been required in order yeah. to steal that player. So ultimately they settled on not going high enough with the average annual value, but it was the exact structure that you would want to try to steal a player out. And I think that being allowed to have some kind of creativity like that is like ultimately it's valuable, right? Like it's uh, mm -hmm. for me as a fan, it's super interesting to see this stuff. And I think that allowing smart teams versus dumb teams to be able to play creatively with that stuff is a net positive. The problem is it ends up in a situation where like you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? Like mm -hmm. you're, because this stuff fucks up escrow and players hate escrow like it it becomes a huge issue where you're almost like you're screwing yourself over right like you have yeah. salaries going way above what the actual cap is for a given season and mm -hmm. then escrow goes way up and these players are pissed that they're losing money to escrow and the more money you're making the more money you're actually contributing to escrow based on percentage right so mm -hmm they're really just fucking themselves over and, and not realizing that it's taking place. So there are limits to the degree that like they got rid of the, the Kovalchuk style back diving deal where you mm -hmm. can make less than a million in a year on the back end of a deal. Like there are percentages in place. So I don't think like if, if you want to fiddle fart with the numbers and change the percentages and make, make the deals a little bit flatter, as long as there's a tool that, you know, people can be a little bit creative, I'm good with it. But in terms of like the signing bonuses and stuff like that, like all it's really doing is providing buyout and lockout protection from players. And mm -hmm. like, I, I would get rid of that, but of course for the players, you're going to have to give them something back. So my solution is I would just guarantee contracts. 
like they're they're already guaranteed but like even for a buyout like just have it be that you give the player all their money when you buy them out but the cap hit is less like there's no reason you couldn't do that so it's it's still going to hurt yeah. small market teams but ultimately the players are going to get their full amount of money mm-hmm. and that's their greatest concern so if you did that and you would it, it would just make it easier to buyout contracts because by eliminating the signing bonuses yeah and the small market teams aren't usually the ones buying players out anyway it's the big teams like new york rangers buying out kevin shattenkirk just to get them off the ice at that point and they can manage the extra money hit whether they had to pay two-thirds of his uh contract to him or the full thing it wouldn't really make a difference to them but you end up with the players getting uh, their full guaranteed contract, as you put it. So yeah, I I'm on board with that. Yeah, and I I also wanted to point out that not just for the teams is the like the the ability to kind of manipulate year to year salary valuable. It, it also <laughs> works for the players. Like we saw it with Timo Meyer and Zach Wierenski, mm-hmm. the way they really smartly. Uh, mapped out the money in their their bridge deals. Like Wierenski got a three-year, $15 million deal, so $5 million AAV. It, but it's basically a four-year deal with the final year being a $7 million mutual option because his qualifying offer, because they structured the money to be $7 million in in the final year, that third year, is his salary. So his qualifying offer for the next season is 7 million. So, you know, whether he signs with like, if he's going to be back with the blue jackets, he's not getting Mm -hmm. less than 7 million for Mm -hmm. that fourth season and then beyond. Right. Yeah. So like, that's, that's really intelligently structured on his part. And that's, it's, it's the reverse of the, of the back diving deal, right. It's the, it's the back rising deal and, and being able to have that type of creativity, I think is valuable. I I agree. And I think uh, if you can find a balance where you can allow that kind of creativity while kind of getting rid of some of the signing bonus problems and some of the escrow problems, then I think everybody will be better off in the long run. For sure. Okay. The third item that was suggested was contract term limits. And you'll mm-hmm. remember this from the last CBA discussion as mm-hmm. that was the, that was the hill that Bill Daly was, uh, was famously willing to die on. And ultimately they did not die on that hill. They did not get five-year contract limits. What do you think about this idea? I think it, I don't know. I think they're a little bit my own myopic with this idea. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that'll cause a whole bunch of unintended consequences. And you'll have the players that would have gone for three or four years say, yeah, I want a max five-year deal. And you've everybody who would have been signed between three and eight years in this current thing is getting signed for five years. And it just messes up a whole lot of uh, different bits of the puzzle. I I, I don't like it. I think uh, you should have the flexibility to go six, seven years if you want, or three or four, five, if you really think that's the right length. And I don't know if it really gives a big advantage to anybody. 
it probably won't change the UFA markets a whole lot because you just end up seeing those players that wouldn't have made it. They get re-signed anyway. I, I don't see a big advantage to it. And I think it's one of those things that you end up with a whole bunch of unintended consequences that you don't want to have to deal with. Right. Well, we saw it in the NBA, right? They, every year, they couldn't help mm-hmm. themselves. They kept handing out longer and longer terrible contracts, and then it would come back and bite them. So eventually they moved to five-year max, and only the best players could get that five-year, and then everyone else was shorter deals. But what ended up happening is the players are just like, well, if I can't get that long-term security, I'm not even going to sign for five years. I'm just going to go year to year and wield my power as a superstar. And I think we're going to see that happen. And like, I'm thinking about where the Oilers are at with McDavid and what a godsend it was that they were able to have him willingly sign an eight-year deal and lock himself in. Because if Mm -hmm. he would have signed a five-year extension coming out of his entry-level deal, like Matthews or Marner did, Mm -hmm. we're a year away from this becoming a problem. Like he'd have, he's got, he'd have three years left after this season. And if this season gets wiped out, that's he's only made the playoffs once in five years. And if they fuck up, like if he gets hurt next year, it could be made the playoffs once in six years. And now he's two years away from being an unrestricted free agent. And if they don't trade him then, then every day they are losing leverage. So Mm -hmm. that whole, that's going to be a complete media circus if that happened. And instead, He's got like six years left on his deal. It's not even a conversation. Like people, people are like, oh, you know, he should be demanding a trade, get out of Edmonton. But like, it's not realistic. Mm-hmm. Whereas if he had gone Matthews or Marner style five-year deal, then we're very close to that circus coming up. Yeah. And with the NBA style that we're comparing it to as well, you end up with the players deciding what teams they want to go to and just loading up. Uh, oh yeah we all want to go play together in Miami or we all want to go play together in LA and let's just all go sign there for a year and I I think I watched the NBA less after that kind of thing started happening I don't enjoy the player super teams I enjoy the NHL parody and kind of teams having to build up and manage their assets and I, I think that would be another one of those NBA style consequences that you have to deal with players kind of taking their leverage and just deciding where they want to go play and moving around every couple of years to play with their buddies. For sure. And I mean, we're talking about this from kind of the irrational fan perspective, right? Like we, for whatever reason, we root for laundry and we don't root for like the, the power of the players, right? Like we don't Mm -hmm. root for their freedom of movement and if you're the NHL, you've got to kind of be looking at what has become a media circus every NBA offseason that is allowing them to kind of win the offseason. Like suddenly the NBA has turned into an 11 month a year sport when maybe it was nine months once upon a time. And maybe they want a piece of that, uh, that offseason buzz as well and really take a chunk out of the news cycle and also like the ability for superstars to take stuff into their own hands and build super teams like 
the NBA is more popular than it's ever been because of these super teams. Like everyone knows going into the year, these are the teams that are going to be vying for it. And like, yeah, you're as likely to root for that team as you are to root against that team. It generates buzz. So you just thinking financially, like as, as the, as an economic product, maybe that's what they're going for, but certainly as like a fan of team building and that sort of thing, it's uh, yeah, I, I don't like it. And I think that the NBA has gotten to the point where the kind of the owners and the GMs hate what, what has become of all the power that they've, they've given to young superstars. And mm-hmm. I think they're, I think as much as they're making fat stacks of cash off of what's happened with it, I think they also hate it. So I don't know, catch 22. And I think that that's the slippery slope they could be heading down if they, if they start uh, decreasing contracts for players. Yeah. It's tough to put the cat back in the bag. Exactly. Um, next up, reforming trade protection clauses. Yeah, I, I'm ambivalent here. I think the players have earned uh, some kind of ability to dictate where they play and where they live. And that's what we look for in our day-to-day jobs as well as a little bit of certainty. We don't want to have to say, oh yeah, pick up your stuff. You're going to Edmonton uh, next week and it's mid-December. No, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I don't mind... Uh, that there's some limitations on who can be traded. I don't mind that the players have some say in where they go. It's it uh, it can take away a little bit from certain trade deadlines and that kind of thing because you limit some of that anyway. But if teams really want to move a player, then they find a way to make it work with the player. We saw Nazem Kadri use that to veto a deal out of going to Calgary and Toronto still ended up moving him and he went to Colorado. So he had some say in it, but in the end it didn't really affect the entertainment value or anything to that effect. So I'm ambivalent on if they want to ramp it up or tone it down or anything there. Yeah. Like we, we just did the, I don't know, anti-player control thing in mm-hmm. the, the the last section with uh, contract lengths. But mm-hmm. the, the reason to, I guess, think that players aren't going to go so extreme if their contracts were shorter and start flying all over the map is the fact that time after time, we've seen evidence that hockey players don't want to move their shit. Like they hate moving. Mm-hmm. They, they very rarely do so and so often they do opt for the longest possible term and just they like to hunker down and stay where they are it's it's part of the culture and like you said if they reach that point where they've earned the right to have some say in where they move or if they move at all then I think that they should have that say I don't want to take that away from them the only reason I, I would want to take it away is just to eliminate the classic excuse from the GM playbook as to why they can't get trades done. Yeah. And that's the only reason otherwise, but I mean, they'll, they'll come care. up with another excuse anyway. So. Oh, exactly. Yeah. It, it just eliminates one from like the list of 30. 
Yeah. Uh, next up on the list, fixing arbitration. Mm -hmm. I can, yeah, I'll start off on this. I think the arbitration, it is a little bit broken at this point. You have the teams and the players just jump too far apart and kind of force everybody down to the middle and say, yeah, if we're going to end up in the middle anyway, then I'll say I'm worth 10 million, not just the five or 6 million that I think I'm worth and the four that we're going to end up with. If I say 10, then we might end up closer to six or seven, but yeah, I, I think, uh, I forget if it was mentioned in the article or somewhere else, but, uh, the, baseball the way baseball has it set up is that the arbitrator has to pick the one or the other the team option or the player option and i like that a lot better it forces everybody to the middle and if you're going to be starting closer to the middle with your offers anyway then it might end up getting rid of a lot of the arbitration cases anyway which i think is the entire goal of it is to not have to go to arbitration yeah, nobody it's, wants it's, to have to go sit in a room and hear how bad you are and hear how much the team underappreciates you or whatever. Yeah, it's like the baseball idea. That's like uh, RFA compensation back in the 90s for the NHL. Mm -hmm. But uh, like I'd get rid of it altogether. Arbitration sounds awful. Like just just don't even have it. It sounds like the worst process to go through ever. Teams yeah. hate it. Players hate it. There's no, I don't know. I, I'm sure there's a reason for it. it. It resolves some disputes when, when there is none, but honestly, it, it sounds like the worst thing in the world and come up with something better. And if you want to have uh, no arbitration kind of thing where you just have players like Mitch Marner or William Nylander, and if they want to use their leverage to not sign a contract and sit out, then they can do that. I, yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things that's broken and needs to be fixed somehow. And I, I agree with you. It sounds like a terrible process that doesn't make sense to have players sit through every year. Nobody comes out of it uh, for the better. So yeah, there's got to be a better way around it somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so next up was fixing a long time injured reserve. And I mean, I don't know. I think we're getting into the weeds. I think we'd all like a, a simplified process to understand as fans and probably mm. most, most higher level executives would like that too. Like they, you know, the, the, the GMs and the team presidents and that sort of thing, they aren't the cap experts, but that said cap guy is literally a job within most organizations. So mm -hmm. if you, if you get rid of LTIR or you, you fix the rules surrounding it, then you either you're taking a ton of work off that person's plate or maybe even eliminating a job entirely. So, I mean, I'm pretty agnostic to this. I, I, I've just come to the conclusion that it's something that I'll never fully understand and I don't need to. Yeah. And no matter what kind of setup you end up with for the injured players, there's going to be someone finding loopholes. There's going to be some way to work around. Maybe you can't trade them, but you can do something else with them. And yeah, it's, it's a messy situation. And especially when you're talking about somebody's health, it's, it can be a tough uh, spot to be put, but uh, yeah, I agree. There's, it doesn't matter where you go with it. There's going to be ways around it and there's the job for it because of that. So 
yeah, I think we're I think we're on the same page there. Okay, and then the last proposal was teams would like compensatory picks for when a college free agent or when when a drafted college player goes to free agency the August 15th thing they would they would like some kind of draft pick compensation for if players opt to do this where did you fall on that I think when I initially read it I didn't like it uh but if it's just for the NCAA guys where they end up uh sticking it out of college and kind of staying for their last year and then exercising their right to choose a team at that point because they've waited long enough then i i don't fault them for doing that and i think yeah it makes sense for the nhl teams to get i don't know maybe a third round pick or something uh in return somewhere there i i'm not against that i think i would be definitely against uh if you have a big ufa go and sign like with baseball Oh yeah. Either whether the team owes you a pick for signing that big player or whether you get uh, one that just mysteriously appears out of thin air as uh, compensation. I think I'm against that for the big UFAs. If you have a better player that's walking away from your team, then that's yours and the player's prerogative. It shouldn't be that, Oh, you're losing a player. We have to make you better again. So you get another draft pick as return. I, I don't think that should be, a part of the game at any point well no that would be like basically turning every player into a restricted free agent right right uh my thing on this is like so i mean the draft seems to be the fairest or at least the most entertaining way that we've mm-hmm. come up with to distribute talent throughout the nhl and certainly established players aren't going to want to see like players just coming into the draft as free agents, right? Like as, as fair as that would probably be Mm. the established players aren't going to ever have that, right? They want them coming in with suppressed salaries so that the established guys can be the ones who make the money, right? They want to, again, robbing Peter to pay Paul type of deal. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we've all agreed that this is like the monopoly type scenario that the NHL gets to have as, as the best hockey league, we're going to do the draft. Why in the hell are players allowed to just kind of wait and then become free agents? And if they've been drafted and why are the rules different, like based on, where you're getting drafted out of and stuff like that. Like I'm sure it goes to amateur status and the different agreements that the the NHL has with the various leagues and associations and that sort of thing. It just doesn't make any sense to me why there's different rules for every league. And like, ultimately it probably doesn't matter because like this stuff never, like it, it almost never happens, right? Like once in a blue moon, mm-hmm. a guy like Justin Schultz, won't sign with the Ducks, goes and signs with the Oilers because he's going to get an instant opportunity. You know, mm-hmm. we saw it last summer, a couple of guys like Adam Fox and John Marino, they weren't going to sign with their teams. So those teams traded them and they got picks recouped in those trades. So mm-hmm. like the, the, they got made whole and they did it on their own. So like for me, I don't know why it's possible, but ultimately like, does it even matter? 
like be smarter about how you manage your assets and it, it won't really be a problem for you. Yeah, I, I can definitely agree with that. You made, I like the point about uh, the different rules for different leagues being kind of strange and not something that makes sense in the end, but it is what it is at this point. And I think teams are used to that and will work around it. And yeah, with Fox and Marino and, I think we saw it with uh, Jimmy VC as well, maybe. Or did he just end up signing on his own? I can't remember. But I yeah, think his a, rights a few got them... traded, and then he went and signed somewhere else on his own. Right, right. But, um, uh, yeah, it, the teams end up usually trading those players anyway to recoup a draft pick, so it probably isn't necessary to start attaching draft pick values to them. Yeah, I just, like... If a, if a guy gets drafted out of the OHL and if he doesn't sign within two years, by June 1st of that second year, if he hasn't signed by then, he goes back into the draft. And then mm-hmm. he gets drafted by another team as a 20-year-old. Why, why do college players just, yeah, we're just, we're just exempt from that. Like, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I would close that loophole instead. Mm-hmm. I don't know if those players... I don't know. It, 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 again, I feel like I'm coming off as anti-player empowerment with this stance. I just, I don't understand why some guys get that freedom and some guys don't. And I mean, they're not, well, they're presumably not making money while they're playing in the NCAA. So mm-hmm. if they're willing to wait that long and risk injury and, and losing all of their, uh, all of their ability to make earnings, if things go as poorly as they possibly could, then I guess that's the payoff for taking that risk. Um, I don't hate that fact. I just, yeah, it, I don't, I don't get the different rules. It just, it's weird to me. Yeah. I think that's definitely fair that we crave consistency. So when there isn't a good reason for it to not be consistent, then it's definitely worth questioning. For sure. So that's our breakdown of some of the CBA proposals. And I guess, I don't know, maybe some of the stuff that we could see get, get countered back by, by the players and that sort of thing. Alex, how have you been, do you have something, something positive? How have you been keeping yourself entertained these days? Uh, I think I've read something like 30 or 40 books since the pandemic started. So I've definitely enjoyed having that time. (laughs) um get the fuck out uh what what is (laughs) what is what's the best book that you read um i can't remember the name of it but uh it kind of followed four uh siblings who all when they were really young got told the day they would die and just how they ended up living their lives after that and how it affected them so i found that really interesting I've also just started the first book, the Game of Thrones series. So just getting into that, I've heard great things about it. Never actually watched the TV show either. So going in oh my uh, God. Okay. cold on that. So should be fun. So here's my stance on Game of Thrones. Okay. That guy's never going to finish the fucking books. I, I just talked about not wanting to be pessimistic. I'm, I'm going pessimistic. <laughs> um, he's never finished in the fucking books. So I... I'm not picking up one of those books and starting to dive into it mm-hmm. unless they're all done. 
because I, yeah. I can't have that incompletion in my life. The TV show was phenomenal. And I don't know where you stand on like reading the book and then watching the movie, but I have always hated any time that I've read the book and then watched the movie. But if I watch the movie and then read the book, it's awesome. So eventually having seen the TV show, I would love to be able to read the Game of Thrones books. And I think it would be a very enjoyable experience for me, but I'm not doing it until those books are done. I think that's definitely fair. I know I've made that mistake with uh, another author who had his first book out in 2007 and we're still waiting on the third book in the trilogy. So I, I definitely feel your pain on that one. And I'm hoping that maybe by the time that uh, I end up getting through the Game of Thrones books that it's a little closer, but I also don't mind too much putting it down and picking it up when it does end up coming out eventually. So it sounds like you've uh, you figured out a good mix of fiction and nonfiction. Yeah, I did end up reading a few NHL books as well. I thoroughly enjoyed the Sean Avery one, which I didn't fully expect to. I think it was uh, fun to be able to see his side of all the stories. And he had a very interesting voice where he didn't hold much back, did, didn't really uh, kind of care what people thought as he was telling stories. And I, I very much enjoyed that view into kind of a different NHL player's mind. Uh, so that I'd recommend, uh, for the people that whether you enjoyed Sean Avery as a player or not, I, I would still recommend the book. Uh, so that's another one that I really enjoyed recently, uh, nonfiction wise. Yeah, I'm pro Sean Avery. I thought like as ridiculous as it was, his screening of Martin Brodeur was mm -hmm. genius. Mm -hmm. And you won't back me off that stance. No, I, I'm on board with it. Uh, Alex, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining the pod once again. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a fun way to force myself out of bed on a weekend and get some uh, hockey talking. So, yeah, really appreciate uh, taking the time to have me on, Steve. Hey, no worries. Let's uh, let's make sure we're we're keeping it positive for for ourselves, for each other, for everyone listening at home. For sure. All right, stay safe, Alex. We'll talk to you again. You too, Steve. Okay, everyone, that's our show. Another great episode. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you like, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Sticks tap to Alex McLean for coming on the pod and entertaining my rants and ramblings on some of the CBA suggestions as well as return to play scenarios. Always fun chatting with Alex. Some big things planned for the podcast later this week. I've got a... 2005 NHL redraft we did with Tony Ferrari coming out as well as I've got some interviews talking NHL draft prospects with TPE hockey I had Josh Bell from the hockey writers on as well as Mason Black from Dauber prospects so keep an eye out for those podcasts coming later this week enjoy the rest of your holiday Monday and stay safe out there